Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. I'm joined today by Mr. Justin Lee. Justin and I are going to discuss issues of technology, issues of attention, devices, social media, and how Christians in particular are meant to live in an environment that divides and subdivides and sub-subdivides our attention so often. What does it mean to be contemplative in our time? How do we resist these very, very irresistible little powers in our pockets. Um, we're going to be discussing these things and more. Thank you for taking the time to join us. So let me open with a story. I was tutoring a student, sixth grade student, he's a very smart kid, and we were talking about the role of social media in his peer group, right? And I asked him some questions about this, and immediately he says, oh, I have a story for you. And he tells me a story. He says, yesterday, Yesterday, he was at a restaurant with his mother, and they were meeting up some friends in the area. These are sort of families that sort of homeschool in a really sophisticated, fancy way. And they were at a restaurant with another mom and a boy, my student's age, this is his friend, and then the boy's little brother is four years old. And he said the whole time during the restaurant, uh, during the meal, um, this little four-year-old is on his iPad. It's clearly his iPad, right? orange and blue, chunky rubber sides, right? Like it's his. He can drop it, he can play with it. And he's playing games the whole time. He doesn't say a word the whole meal. He says they're at a long meal. It's like an hour at least. And he says when the meal is over and they get up to go and the mom starts saying goodbye to each other and whatever, without looking up, this little four-year-old boy, we'll call him Tyler, says thank you and don't forget to subscribe. And the moms hear him say this uh, and he still hasn't looked up but he just stood up to go, and the moms start laughing because they realize that he's been watching YouTube videos the whole time. And what my, fr my friend said, my student, sixth grader, he said the moms were laughing, and so everyone started laughing, and Tyler started laughing and was smiling because he was getting all this kind of attention all of a sudden. And my student said that he was, like, horrified. He was like, it was like they didn't realize that he thought that when someone says goodbye or something comes to an end, the most obvious thing, because it's the thing he hears all the time, because he's always on this device watching YouTube videos, is thank you and don't forget to subscribe. And he tells me the story like offhandedly. I didn't even have to go digging. He goes, this happened like yesterday, as soon as I brought up this topic of social media. So this idea, and, and there have been studies also done. I, I think we can just go ahead and call it right there. This, this that's is the end of the that's world. That's the end of the podcast. This is the end of the pod, end of the world. Burn everything Four down. Four years old, Justin. Four years old, thank you and don't forget to subscribe, is how he says goodbye to the company in which he was not really connected to. And everyone laughs. And he thinks it's like the funniest thing in the world. And my student was saying he wasn't like trying to make something funny happen. He instinctively said it without looking up. And, and then it reminded me of a study I had read recently, at the time at least, um, that talked about when people are greeted or young people are greeted or um, or farewells are said or whatever, they look down or for the sound. They look down for a screen when they hear traditional greetings and stuff because they're used to being welcomed by a YouTube vlogger or something like this. <laughs> 
And I thought when I read that study, I was like, oh, come on. Like, no kids walking around and hear someone say hello and they look down at a screen to see who is at saying that from their device. And then he literally, without being prompted, gives me the story of a four year old who says, thank you and don't forget it, to subscribe. I mean, I feel like every day yeah. I am increasingly thankful that I was born. 10 years earlier Can you than what I could it? have been. Can you believe it? So, okay, so starting with the, the world of kids, okay? In the world of kids, um, the sort of APA, American Pediatrics Association, um, tries to almost yearly kind of revise and update their recommendations for screen time. So we're just starting with the world of children, right? They always say uh, 18 months and under, <clears throat> nobody should be looking at a screen, not a minute of their life, 18 months and under, right, for their brain development. When they get a little bit older, when they get to like uh, closer to two, two to four, something like that, they usually say no more than an hour a day, which sounds like a lot to me. No more than an hour a day, but that hour would have to be what they call high quality content, which is like PBS or some other really intentional kind of set of programming. Um, but they also always recommend that any screen time a young person um, takes on or, or, or enjoys should be done with their parents, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, as a parent, I know, screens are used to, for Tyler, to not interrupt the meal, right? They're not, they're not involved with it, they're not mm -hmm. helping. Because the APA is always saying, uh, look, you can have some very restricted, very limited screen time at home uh, for the purposes of whatever, entertainment, if, the parents are in a, like a mentoring role, helping them process what they're seeing and how to apply it in the real world. So case in point, Tyler is not understanding, or at least impulsively not understanding, mm -hmm. that a video he's watching of a person in, in YouTube um, is not a transferable sort of language category for saying mm -hmm. goodbye in real life, right? Um, he's not been mentored as how to make connections between whatever he does watch and how the real world works, right? That's kind of an easy tell there. So even when they start to say things about screen time being expanded, they are talking about in-home use, and they said it should be time with the family, not time, mm -hmm. which it almost always is, which is time separate from one another. Yeah. Time in the room, time so that mom or dad can get dinner together, right? It's always a, de a device distractional kind of thing. So even when people will trot out those studies and say, well, look, it says like, you know, for eight to 12 year olds, like two hours a day um, is fine. But it's always with a parent watching mm -hmm. something with them. And that just almost never happens because yeah. the role of, of media and devices in well, parenting and, and is even, just so different. And even advertisements yeah, are right. training people to use them as tools to distract your kids. Right. I mean, so <laughs> that two hours is, is a without advertisement, like it's this kind of almost impossible time of consuming pure, yeah. oh, uninterrupted. No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, <laughs> what I'm saying is, you know, there, there a couple of years ago, there was a yeah. commercial for tablets. Uh, it was probably for, eh, I don't know if it was for iPad or, or for Fire, whatever. Um, <laughs> whatever the Amazon monstrosity is. That thing was not popular. Uh, <laughs> but it was probably it was probably Amazon. Yeah. Apple's a little bit classier than this. Yeah, they show you like black and white people making yeah, well, like music. So, so so that was the thing though. It was yeah. it was like, you know, all all black actors in the in the commercial. And and this uh and so it's like a guy who is babysitting like he has nephews, I think. And and they're just off the walls. 
and it's driving him crazy, and he can't handle it. And then all of a sudden, he has the two tablets that he can just give them. So this and is the commercial. This is the commercial, <laughs> and they are perfect. And he can go just like decompress oh, yeah. and oh, just be all be right. A human, yeah. And be and totally. And it's like you know, here, here is how you can be a human at the expense of your children's humanity. Yeah. See, okay, they would never run that commercial anymore. Yeah. But the fact that early days they were running that commercial. Well, is this was like two point. years ago. Yeah. This is this is. You know, we're not past that. <laughs> I mean, if we think we're past that, we're, I mean, we're kidding ourselves. Well, it's, oh, it's, it's true, but it's less and less, or it's becoming a li- at least slightly stigmatized, but only slightly. Um, but, on, but stigmatized among who? Yeah. Among well, whom? Well, parents already carry a lot of guilt, so it's really hard to talk about devices with parents. I find it really difficult. If I bring it up, people feel bad. They look away. They like, feel like you're being like unfair mm-hmm. or something like that. And, you know, I'm not a mom, so it's easier for mm-hmm. my wife to have that conversation about because she's the one who has to still do all the things without using that as a distraction for them. Mm-hmm. Although our kids are doing fantastic. It's hard and it's harder, mm-hmm. um, but they're doing really well and they just enjoy whatever they enjoy and things like that. But it requires a huge commitment, huge mm-hmm. intentionality. In our home, at least as parents, that's why we got rid of the TV. Yeah, It was so that... Because even when we would watch really good stuff like Mr. Rogers or something like this with um, our, even when we were sharing it and helping mm-hmm. process things or whatever like that, with the TV on the wall, um, and Andy Crouch talks about this in his book, TechWise Family, which is an amazing book. Um, but just with the TV being, first of all, in a central place in our home mm-hmm. on the wall, it was constantly there nudging mm-hmm. um, us. And then eventually my son, who once we started watching anything, even if it was once a week on Friday nights together mm-hmm. after my daughter had gone down to sleep, um, he would regularly the next day and the next day and the next day say, can we watch a little something, something? Can we yeah. watch a little something, something? And, and we were like, oh my gosh, it's just there, constantly mm-hmm. reminding him of what he's not watching on it. And so it's, it's distracting him when it's off, you know? And mm-hmm. we realized that it was gonna, that we were gonna have to kind of go a little further just because he would just be begging just to watch anything, you know, he didn't, he mm-hmm. just like, that was so fun, right? It was so stimulating. So our removal of that, and then, and then of course it was great for us because, you know, we want to practice what we're trying to preach to our kids. But even doing that and even talking about that makes parents feel bad because, because nobody's yeah. doing that. That sounds like, it sounds like we're survivalists on the range somewhere, like right. but, preparing for the end of the world. But those conversations are happening and, they and they should be happening. And they're more likely to be happening among elites among mm. people in the okay, upper class. Good segue. So 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 you want to talk also about this simple fact. Um, so Silicon Valley has developed a technology that really the iPad especially kind of ran out pretty fast of use, yeah. right? And and so uh, production and sales stagnated. People were like, mm-hmm. why did I need this? I don't know. I don't use mm-hmm. this thing at all. And then they started to uh, almost for free uh, offer these devices to schools, right? Yeah. And not like high schools, but like right. K to yeah. eight, you know, K to six schools. So um, I was reading something, uh, uh, no, I was I was visiting a area school, which is K to eight, and it is an extremely expensive private school. And mm-hmm. one of their major advertising points is that every child has their own iPad. Yeah. Right? And I'm thinking, first of all, rich kids who can afford to go to a $40,000 school as a fourth grader yeah. already have an iPad. <laughs> um, but it was like, hey, parents, don't worry. We're tech savvy. We're at the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Your kids are going to learn all the digital sort of literacy that they need. They're going to be these like 
proto kind of programmers at the age of like seven, you know, and then they would always photograph like girls, let's say for the website, right? Because mm -hmm. it was like a female empowerment thing. Your girl yeah. is going to be Moana, but she's going to be a programmer. She's going to be, <laughs> you know, it was like this incredible <laughs> sell. And, um, and I remember like thinking, oh, okay, wait, forget the at-home use. Mm -hmm. So first of all, when people say an hour, two hours, um, the, the research shows that 39% of, of uh, 8 to, let's say, 14, 8 to 12-year-olds, excuse me, 39% of 8 to 12-year-olds uh, watch two hours of less of screen time a day. So more, almost two-thirds of all people in that little demographic, 8 to 12, it only gets worse when you go past mm -hmm. 12, um, but, but two-thirds of 8 to 12-year-olds uh, have more screen time than two hours. Mm -hmm. So the average or the, you know, half, more than half of the country is already well past um, the APA's recommendation at home yeah. or in their personal life. Now they're going to the classroom, and it's not for a computer class. It's for every class. It's for their language learning, right? Mm -hmm. It's for it's like a game of Spanish words or whatever. It's for their bio. Oh, they're gonna you know get a three D model of a skeleton or something. Um, now it's in every classroom as early as uh, first and second grade. Sometimes maybe earlier in kindergarten. But they and they're promoting this as you spend the money. You're elite people. We will give your kids an elite education um, by creating this sort of digital tech savviness. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is, as maybe we already know, the problem is, uh, in a recent study, let's say that West Point did, and it did it at one of these really highly competitive, high-quality mm -hmm. educational schools, um, found overwhelmingly that students who use devices in the classroom, any use of computers in the classroom, okay, any computer usage, even with strict limitations, reduced students' average final exam performance by roughly one-fifth of a standard deviation. <laughs> And that was across categories. So they would compare students who had basically the exact same GPA. It's not like, oh, these yeah. were already underperforming students who happened to mm -hmm. have devices or something. Um, at one of the highest performing schools in which the pressure and the job thing is so related to mm -hmm. their performance on exams and things like that, um, where one of the biggest selling points to especially rich parents was everyone who has an iPad. You get an iPad. You get an iPad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, Johnny gets an iPad for every subject. Um, they found that across the board, they did worse. Across the board, having a computer in the classroom yeah. meant that everybody did worse on their exams. Um, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What we, do we do with that? I mean, it's like, how could people be so wrong about something that seems so... Have you ever watched a computer burn? <laughs> it's I it's mean, like, beautiful. Seriously. All these different things melt. And that you wouldn't expect to melt. Just think Things about Things pop and crackle. Just think about, though, like, think about how bad you and I as grown adults are with these kind of devices. Yeah. Think about how horrible and wasteful and stupid we are with these devices. And now give it to a person whose brain is just, like, starting to emerge in the world and expect anything more of them using a device. Like... I mean, I think one of the things that works in the classroom is kids come home and they're excited because they were playing games all day and the parents are like, oh, but they were secretly learning. And I think the kids mm -hmm. report a more enjoyable school experience because they're playing, they're on devices, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet, they are not better. They're surely worse equipped to make mm -hmm. good decisions about attention, about anything else as soon as they... Well, well they're, they're equipped to not make decisions, they're they're equipped to to simply default to um, behaviors that they have been conditioned into them by people not themselves or their parents really. 
So tell me about the Silicon Valley folks. Yeah, so you know, so there's just this incredible cynicism that is becoming more widely acknowledged. Um, but uh, so these same people who are, you know, and this is true of Steve Jobs, um, but it's, it's the same people who are putting these devices into classrooms and promoting the idea that, you know, you, you know, you can have this incredible, almost aristocratic education um, through these devices. And, you know, you, you even get rhetoric as crazy as, you know, this can, you know, end the crisis of the public schools, you know, stuff, crap like that. It, it is sold heavily to sort of under-resourced or low-performing yeah. schools as yeah. like this benevolent hand down. And if, and if you're, if you're a public school teacher and, yeah, you know, yeah. you're not, and you're not just teaching, you have to be this disciplinarian. You people in your yeah, class. You're, you're, it's already impossible. You're overwhelmed yeah. all the time. Sure. And if this thing comes in and all of a sudden kids are being, are sitting still. It's incredible. I mean, it seems like a miracle. It's a religious experience. <laughs> and, but meanwhile, um, the same people that have been pushing these policies, pushing this tech use for their own children will not allow their children to touch screens. They send them to private schools where there are no screens. And, and this, this is known. This, this is, is yeah. a study. There's a recent book by Adam Alter called Irresistible. Subtitle is The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked. And... Alter just lays that out, sort yeah. of like tech giant by tech giant, um, how little to zero uh, time mm-hmm. they allow, or how none of their children up to uh, late teen years. And they didn't just discover this, right? Because no. because they've been they've been doing the attention hacking stuff with social media and with the devices for years, right. and they they know what they've been doing to other people. So they know how to defend against it for their own children. Right. And so in this book, Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, it talks about all the research that has gone into um, the casinofication yeah. of Facebook and all the mobile platform apps and all the social media mm-hmm. apps, the reward systems, the intermittent reward systems, mm-hmm. things like endless scrolling, things they picked up basically from casino games, yeah. slot machines, things like that. How do you, like when you walk through the airport in Vegas and you just see people like curled over mm-hmm. into these like positions of like death that they're just looking at these mindlessly spinning you know, yeah, wheels like, with certain colors. Is that, is that rheumatoid arthritis? <laughs> oh no, they're, they're a gambler. And they're not kids, right? Like they're like all adults. And, and so the body of research from the casino or from the gaming community, let's just say the gaming community. The community. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to be... Be generous. You can be generous. I'm trying to be generous. I'm a pastor. Um, the body of research from this is not new, right? Like mm-hmm. it is deep and it is wide and it is broad. And so they know how to, as you say, hack people's attention yeah. and keep people dangerously addicted to things, even as those things chew away at them yeah. and well, rob them of all I mean, their finances. For example, hell has hell has outsourced its R and D department. So, <laughs> and and then the tell you're saying the tell, and so is Adam Alter. The tell is that the very people who have weaponized this sort of gamified technology uh, for the sake of their own products and their millions. Mm-hmm. Um, they refuse to let their kids be uh, sort of shaped by their yeah. own sort of devious technology. Yeah, and and, <laughs> and and what you know, what will this do over time? I, I think it should be pretty obvious. Uh, you know, if we have the children of the elite mm. uh, being protected from neural dampeners, from cognitive dampeners, 
um, during their development, uh, you know, we're creating um, an intellectual caste system through that. That to me seems like a really, really important point that isn't made often enough. Like they will trot out in certain talks I've seen or whatever, you know, Steve Jobs or, or any of the number of people, especially the ones who are currently alive, um, who have sort of designed, you know, the fundamentally sort of structured certain of these technologies and say that very thing. Mm-hmm. They don't let their kids use it. But the broader implication is basically mm-hmm. they are smart enough, well-researched enough because mm-hmm. they are the creators of it that they also have a way of shaping their children differently. Whereas if you talk to any normal parent who is overwhelmed, stressed, exhausted, mm-hmm. you talk about the classroom teacher, just talk about any mom, overwhelmed, stressed, exhausted all the time, and then you show up in the middle of a culture that for the last generation, literally we're calling it Gen Z, but we're also calling it iGen, for the last generation, the vast majority, I think the number is about 90% of children up to the age of about 14, children I think 13 or 14, have their own phone or iPhone or whatever it may be. Okay, so in the middle of that, you suddenly say, oh yeah, and you know, but rich people don't do that or whatever. Um, and now all of a sudden you realize this is not like we're starting from scratch here. We yeah. already have an entire generation yeah. raised on these devices. And so what you're saying is, okay, and it's, it's like the same argument about food, right? It's like mm-hmm. you can't, if you're poor, you can't afford to eat healthy, right? You yeah. can't just go to get some quinoa Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. If like you have $3 in your pocket and you got to feed two kids, you have to stop at McDonald's, right? So there's something there about the class system and the poverty you know, thing already and the willingness of major companies like Amazon, Apple, yeah. and Google to donate to yeah. public school systems, iPads that, or, or whatever devices, so that every kid gets a Google Chromebook or whatever yeah. uh, to write all their papers. You know. Well, and and it's even more insidious than that because people do have a choice. You know, right. so much of this is a cognitive script. You know, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, poor people ate before McDonald's existed. Yes. And so you know, there. Presumably. It, presumably. <laughs> um, you know, you, you can get around it, and you can get around the the, the, te- the tech issue. Okay. It just takes, it takes intentionality. Okay, but one of the things about being wealthy is you have options, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I mean. Um, you have options of time. You have mm-hmm. options of reading, of research, of, of any number of things that somebody working two or three jobs has less and less of those kinds yeah. of options. So all I'm saying is back to the issue of even when you bring this up in polite lower to middle to upper middle class mm-hmm. circles, the reaction of parents typically is just kind of like avoidance, just like mm-hmm. a little shame maybe, but like, look, it's just hard and nobody's perfect. Don't make me feel bad about this, right? It is kind of like, it's already too late, yeah. right? Like, no, I've heard so many conversations just in passing in restaurants and malls and whatever, parents saying, what are we going to do? Take them, take them away now. All their friends have these things, right? Yeah. Like, so the, just the willpower has been so worn down by the commonness and the, the widespread nature of these things that it, it, it seemed for a while that like, there's no way this thing is going to so, be but, reversed. You know, so, so what if you, what if you told a set of parents, you know, in your community that, Hey, we've got a problem with the water and there's, there's, it's not an enormous quantity of lead, but it's just enough to make all of our kids dumber by one-fifth of a standard deviation. Um, what, how would they respond to that? I think they would probably discover the local town hall for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> and they would probably raise a whole lot of hell. Yes. Okay. So there is something about the abstraction yeah. of um, 
Because, you know, they probably don't think about screen timer devices. They think of, like, Daniel Tiger. They think of, like, Dora the Explorer. They yeah. think of what their kids are actually doing, and, they think, and they're thinking, this is high-quality educational programming. Mm -hmm. My kid's not just, like, consuming junk and or, and I think maybe this latter is even more true, they know their own habits. Yeah. They know how they consume yeah. content, and they're thinking, how could I change something that I haven't changed in myself? Like, wh yeah. what are we even talking about here? Yeah. I do all these things and much more than yeah. my kids I are allowed to. I love drinking lead-flavored water. <laughs> I, I can't. I love me some lead. I buy lead every day, and I mix it into my water. How can I tell my kid I, I, not to I, drink I, lead? I, I sit down in front of Netflix on my yes. sofa with my yes. with my bag of I'm paint an chips. At a passive consumption. <laughs> yes, but that's it, right? It's that the adults love this maybe even more than the kids, yeah. and and so it's not just like oh for the children's sake. It's you would have to change, right? Like. You tell your kids something, and then they see you are always on your phone. Like it's just so absurd. Eventually, mm -hmm. that's going to tell, right? So, but why? So, yeah. Why? Why can't parents give it up? Why? Okay. Why can't parents give up? I mean, is it is it that we think we're grown adults? Like we're just not out of control. Like we're reasonable people. Mm -hmm. There's probably people much worse than us. We're not looking at porn on these things or whatever. Or are we? Or or, are or maybe not as much right. as. So other people are looking at okay, porn. Okay, okay. So devices. this is this is worth thinking about, right? Um, the numbers are terrifying, right? As far as the uh, the number of people, let's say thirteen to eighty in this country that regularly consume pornography. Okay, you know much, if not most, of that is now mobile, or it's yeah. like that's at least the portal, right? The access point. Um, so is it that? And this is especially scary when you talk about sort of Christians who are supposed to like resist these things and know that this is like destructive. Um, is it an unwillingness to talk about those deeper kind of things? Mm -hmm. you know, is it a belief that, well, I might struggle with that, but surely that's not that's not going to be what most people deal with? Like, what do you think is the what do you think is going on there? With I think, I mean, porn is part of the picture, but I think it's a small part of the picture okay. when it comes just the general um, device addiction. But, okay, if we could look at it the other way and say, okay, well, what are we actually doing? Or what are we actually engaging in when we're on our devices as mm -hmm. far as what actual apps, platforms, or whatever? Yeah. By and large, at least it seems, uh, it's social media, mm -hmm. right? And it's not just our kids are on social media. We are on social media, right? Now, the recent things in the last what, two to three years, the numbers and the data coming back on social media and the increase in depression and suicide rates and all these things for mm -hmm. young people is the first thing I've seen that yeah. has actually stopped parents mm -hmm. and people and said, like you said about lead in the water, um, so-and-so Jimmy was bullied and now Jimmy hung himself and he's 10 years yeah. old, right? Like that, that story has happened several times this year. Um, and so now people are starting to experience this and they're realizing it's pretty common for their children to have already been experiencing things like this. Yeah. So the deleterious effects of social media, finally, after these poor guinea pig generation kids mm -hmm. are growing up a little bit more and we're seeing what's happening, um, that does seem to be beginning or changing the conversation, Yeah. right? So maybe the tech elite thing, if you get the right book or you watch the TED mm -hmm. Talk, you found that out. But most people don't think about that yeah. and just addictive technologies but, or whatever. But then, but then what are the solutions right now that are being proposed mm. largely? They are, you know, okay, well, let's do something about the bullies. Let's do something about right. 
um, you know, let's not deal with you know the the underlying design functionality of these of these platforms. Let's let's tweak things so that um, you know we can you know cut out the the bad influences, the bad uses. Yeah, and so they'll do uh, so many programs at school. So this mm-hmm. is also a generation that's grown up with programs at schools <laughs> talking about bullying, right? Yeah. And and some of the data coming back on those is it only gets worse in schools that have programs about anti-bullying programs, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the worst, saddest thing you ever could read. Um, but the point... Well, but, 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 but that that's not counterintuitive for anyone who ever went to school. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, I that's that's why it's like, "Oh, you want me to not bully?" Right. Well, watch me go bully. Now I'm going to think more constantly about how to bully you better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this yeah, is you just, you just gave true. you just gave me an instruction pack. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is true. The kids are when kids are kids, the kids are kids, the kids are pretty terrible. And so they found, yes, the more they talk about this and try to program it, the more kids actually engage in it, right? It only gets worse. Now, back to your point though. So the way of addressing this potentially is get to the root of the way that these platforms yeah. are designed. But this is freaking America, man. Yeah. And that sounds like some socialistic government regulation. What are you proposing? That people not be free? I mean, look, man, people can can buy cigarettes if they want to buy cigarettes. They, you know, they can make their choices. That's like why this country is great. It's because you can do anything you want. No one can yeah. tell you what to do. Yeah. Um, bullying is as American as apple pie. Yeah. So... <laughs> It it is, but it is. Um, it's also as Ukrainian as as whatever yeah. <laughs> pies as they you, eat in Ukraine. It's, <laughs> it's, it's it's human nature. Oh my gosh. Okay, so so okay. about that argument, right? Um, and it's pitiful logic. So so first of all, um, that's the same that's the same logic behind um, trying to um, dampen the effects of online bullying that sort of thing because the kinds of Policies that have been proposed uh, are um, in clear violation of the First Amendment. And, you know, there was a lot of talk a few years ago in one of the bigger um, cyberbullying-related suicides, uh, the suicide of Megan Meyer, happened. Um, You know, there's legislation that was put forward by, I think, uh, California's own... uh, Gavin? Deborah Sanchez. Oh, oh, Deborah. Yeah. Uh, I think Deborah. Um, I think I know the last name is Sanchez. Anyway, um, absolutely abysmally written piece of legislation that you know is obviously designed to address the problem and make it so that um, any non-lefty um, political speech in high schools and middle schools that comes about can be treated as bullying. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's an impulse, you know whether you're trying to deal with the underlying problem, which is the platforms themselves, or trying to deal with how they're used, um, you know, dealing with it at all uh, at the level of um, government, to the level of power. Okay, is so that's going not to, what you're, you're suggesting. Well, yeah, so, so I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that because, you know, those kinds of solutions, period, you're right, are going to um, subvert rights one way or another, depending right. on... Right, no matter who's in power. Yeah. It'll just yeah. go whatever direction. Yeah, and, and no matter what kind of solution it is, it's going to, um, you know, upset the horse cart of rights in so some way. So then how do you affect... So are you talking about, like, groundswell, people just, like, refusing to use these things? Are you talking yeah. about just a whole body of literature getting more and more and more traction and yeah. becoming just sort of that kind of the popular boycott kind of power of just... 
of shaming companies yeah. into better practices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I mean, I personally am in favor of things that are even more extreme than, than that. You know, I, I mean, if the, um, you know, th- there are obviously constitutionally licit ways to, to deal with tech companies and, and the way that they are harming people. Um, but, you know, we don't need the government to do that. Hmm. Uh, we just need people to know, and we need people to be willing to, to make, actually, you know, what ultimately are very small sacrifices in their behavior um, for larger goods. Yeah. Because if you know someone who has, like, quit social media stuff, uh, you'll never meet someone who quit social media and then said, man, I, I really regret having no, given never. this stuff up. And no, they're farting rainbows. They're, they're yeah, so happy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's like, never lived a life it's, like, it's like someone who's, <laughs> it's like somebody who's like gone on a really good diet and started CrossFit. Yeah. <laughs> you never hear them sort of down about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I, I regret doing all this yoga. All these so burpees, much. man. Doing the, the, doing the general McAllister 50. Wow. I just can't. <laughs> I don't feel in any way empowered as a uh, human being. Man, I'm I miss the days when I didn't have a six pack, you know. But no, okay. but yeah. Okay. So getting back to the local level, then getting back to habits and practices, um, ostensibly, we're also thinking of Christians and mm-hmm. intentionality. Um, so some of the some of the work of of prioritizing value. Uh, prioritizing time and how and where our attention is mm-hmm. spent. Um, wanted to talk a little bit about Cal Newport's work. Yeah. Um, Cal Newport has a book um, a few years ago called Deep Work, in which he describes, and this actually could play really well in scary ways with your classist argument. Mm-hmm. He describes, okay, the future economy is going to privilege inordinately deep, sustained focal attention. Um, the things that human beings are uniquely good at, synthesizing information, mm-hmm. critical thinking at deep, deep, deep levels that cannot be easily automated, that's mm-hmm. going to be the most valuable sort of sort of intellectual yeah. and otherwise, that labor in the economy. Um, everything else that can be will be automated, but mm-hmm. this sort of deep attention, this deep critical thinking capacity, this deep synthesis kind of work, which is really something that human brains are really good at when they are well-trained into it, um, that's going to be the most valuable form of, of work mm-hmm. in the next generation's economy. That's kind of one of his arguments in, in this book, Deep Work. Now, then the corollary is nobody is training themselves to actually be able to do that yeah. anymore. We are quite literally training ourselves out of that capacity. Mm-hmm. So that's like Nicholas Carr's work uh, in the book, The Shallows, describes how even in even in the later adult years, um, mm-hmm. the brain's flexibility is sort of almost frightening in its ability to mm-hmm. adapt to whatever the heck you happen to be doing with yeah. it, right? And so if you're training your habits and practices of constantly interrupting yourself with your phone or your phone with its irresistible, uh, addictive, casino-like, <laughs> magical technology to interrupt you, if you are being interrupted constantly, regularly, you are teaching your brain to be excellent at interruption, right? Yeah. At suspending and interrupting uh, coherent and well, deep thinking. Well, and you know, some cognitive neurosciences scientists will, you know, would also emphasize that you know our brains are designed to be good at being disrupted. Mm. You know, we, mm. um, you know, th- this is less true in the modern era, but for you know most of humanity's existence. This is a survival feature, right. you know, this, you know, you being able to be, you know, so, you know, alert because there's something novel in your environment, 
um, helps you not get eaten. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, yeah, you wouldn't want your thoughts to create an immediate stupor that you yeah. have to emerge <laughs> yeah. as, as from a fog to run. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so we have a, a, a nice, even uh, innate predisposition for mm-hmm. interruption yeah. um, for certain and maybe obvious pers- uh, reasons, uh, at least once upon a time. Now, maybe mm-hmm. those same impulses or those same design um, benefits have been harnessed and weaponized against us for the sake yeah. of likes and hearts on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and so, so then we're in this place where we have accelerated what was already maybe something that was somewhat innate. Uh, we've accelerated and we have at least decelerated, right? I mean, you, you mm-hmm. could make an argument that maybe a human being is capable of being really good at two or three different kinds of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Interruptive thinking and deep thinking, right? Yeah. Um, but the... Well, but but, but, the, but in, interrupted thinking is not thinking. Right. I mean, the, you know, anyone, right. anyone who like begins to dig into this... Right, it's survivalist kind anyone of... Anyone who begins yeah. to dig into this literature... Do you think multitasking is a fiction? Multitasking is an absolute it's fiction. It's a complete fiction, yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It, 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 it's why, I say, so there is this, um, this is just popping in my head, this is kind of related. There's yeah. this this silly movement, you know, in uh, office culture to, you know, the open environment. Oh, yeah, the open office. Yeah, and... Get rid of the cubicles, Justin. We're human beings. This is organic. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is great. Constantly we run into constantly Bob. Constantly share and information, it's share ideas. It's just synthetic crackling just, nerves. Pop, yeah. pop, 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 pop. Yeah. Yeah, innovation and, is just going to emerge fully formed yeah, out of and this no, open not, environment. It doesn't at all. And in fact, it's one of the worst things <laughs> that's ever happened to the business world. <laughs> so is so is email, or so is Slack, right? So Slack yeah. was this great way of sort of organizing yeah. everyone into these long threads of chat throughout the day. Yeah. And this is a big thing in Deep Work, uh, the yeah. other Cal Newport book, um, that email itself, but especially Slack, mm. have probably been the very worst and most crippling things in every office environment yeah. uh, based on what it has done to people's attention, yeah. interrupting them and constantly from the kind of work that they're actually expected to and do. And again, like Slack is something that you can use to great effect if you're very intentional about it. Right. And you know, so you know, I edit for Arc Digital, mm. and we have we have a Slack. None of us live in the same place. We don't see each other ever, and so we need something like that. Right. And and you can control notifications. You can set up. You can set it up so that I don't ever get any Slack notifications whatsoever. But I will be on Slack okay. during these given times during the day. Okay. So that. Is the difference. Not to demonize technologies, especially yeah. the ones that were created not for the purpose of addiction, mm-hmm. but the purpose of solving a problem. Yeah. Um, and especially a problem of uh, regionalism or separation of actual physical spaces and stuff. But the use of that technology, the way mm-hmm. that it's used. Now, the open office is different because you can't control that. You can't be yeah. like, I'm only going to be in the yeah. open office for an hour today. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, then you're fired. Yeah. Um, so, okay, there are technologies like Slack or something else that you can set, regulate, interact with in ways that are reasonable and still can create space for mm-hmm. deep work that is uninterrupted work, right? Yeah. Um, that requires some sort of, what, you tell your, you, you tell everyone, hey, you, yeah. you know, this is not an always on thing, you know, uh, we need to all make sure. You, I mean, you have to authorize that. So your boss would have to be okay that they can't just expect you to jump every time a message goes out because right. you might not actually be on or having notifications. Mm-hmm. So there would have to be some kind of almost communal kind of agreement yeah. that yeah. that was a thing. Um, and then so too, the business world maybe, 
I don't know if it will be as interesting to our listeners. I don't know who our listeners will be, <laughs> if we'll have any listeners. But um, I'm thinking now of... You don't, of, ju- you don't ever just speak into the void. Because okay. no one pays more attention to you than, than the existential void, the abyss. The, the, the no-self? The no-self. <laughs> no, but, but, but really... And, I'm calling out to my no-self and right I'm, now. And, I'm, and I love that there are hello, eight people hello, in the world hello. who would get that joke. Um, at least eight people in the Christian world. Um, anyway, okay. so I brought up the abyss for a reason. Oh, and we're, we're gonna, we're, whoa, whoa, no, we're going to circle back to it in a moment. Always okay? return to we're the gonna abyss. We're going to return to the abyss okay. shortly. <laughs> okay, so talking about regulating technology and having uh, communal agreements, let's talk about the family. Yeah. Okay, so like I said, way back to America and Pediatrics say, if and when devices, screens, passive uh, media entertainment is, is used, mm-hmm. it should be mentored by parents. It mm-hmm. should be with, right? Yeah. If, it's a, if it's used at all, and it's, it's probably usually better that it's not, at least because of the mm-hmm. effect, um, but it needs to be mentored. It needs to be processed with yeah. um, family members. It needs to be not a way of separating from family or having private lives, mm-hmm. right? Um, Andy Crouch's book, The TechWise Family, just can't be read often enough and everyone should read that book because in that he establishes really clear patterns and uh that his family has been able to use in this world so that's not impossible it's not just a luddite argument or some Mm -hmm. anti-tech argument this guy has written so much on tech this is like part of his world um but that kind of intentionality of just being just reading that book or listening to that book lisa and i and my wife um I've listened to it two or three times now because you need this kind of like intentional thought, this kind of conversation, this kind of thing to be able to commit to these things Mm -hmm. because left by myself, right? Yeah, no Um, way would you do it. No way, no way. So, And it has to be not just the family, but community outside of the family. And okay, so this is what I'm saying. So starting with, you know, my smallest unit, uh, which is the family, um, we started to realize that we were concerned about the lead poisoning Mm -hmm. in our children's water. And then we started to be like, oh, it's, yeah, we can't. We love this water. Well, um, we started to realize we can't yeah. expect things of them that we aren't actively performing the opposite of, of in front mm-hmm. of them, or trying to hide from them yeah. or something, right? So we realized as a family that has to be something that if we value that for them, we value that for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We just value that, right? It's just a value. Um, and so it went to things like getting rid of the TV. Part of the idea was um, it forces you to have to create more. Um, mm-hmm. You have to create more kinds of play. You have to create more conversation. You have to, you know, you might be tired at the end of the day and you might not want to create anything. You mm-hmm. might want to passively just consume things, but it nudges you in the other direction. Um, I know for a fact, Lisa and I have, have had conversations we never would have had mm-hmm. if we just got back into our Netflix show. And I can't even, it would be impossible to estimate the value of those conversations. Yeah. Conversations about parenting, about our lives, about the Lord, about jobs, Prayer. I mean, things that yeah. just wouldn't have happened if we had another really great even, Netflix queue. Even, even if you didn't have conversations and you just sat there <laughs> looking vaguely at one another, yes. it would be more meaningful human connection than sitting there staring at the, the screen. Yeah, and we started to realize that even, even sharing that kind of passive consumption was not, it, it was not sharing much, right? Yeah. Um, we weren't interacting. We were just both looking at the mm-hmm. same thing. And 
okay, so even just taking the TV down, first of all, it's sort of shocking how big your TV actually is. Um, <laughs> so then there's like this huge blank space on our wall. Mm -hmm. And so then we start looking at like uh, William Turner paintings that we love and like mm -hmm. things that we're going to put in that space instead. You know, I, I don't know that I would talk about being able to purchase a uh, no, a, it's a, a Turner. Print. It's a print, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about know, all what is it? All posters. <laughs> I'm talking about something totally reasonable. Don't be a jerk. I'm not being classist, okay? Um, I'm just saying it opened up a weird blank space on our wall, and we like we have her guitar hanging up so that she's more likely to mm -hmm. play music. Uh, which the kids love and I love and everything else. But if the guitar's hidden, it's not going to be played as often, right? So just the way we ended up having to reorganize the space, yeah. just in the same way we would for our kids, like play space, like, oh, we want like intentional yeah. objects, blah, blah, blah. All the parenting geeky stuff. But then we were like, oh, wait, this is our space, right? Like mm -hmm. this is how, this is where we live. And so just in where we ended up putting the couch and where we ended up, you know, <laughs> instead of everything revolving around the television and the couch yeah. facing the television and all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff, it just totally changed the design of our little uh, living room, right? right? Our little living space. And and yet it was like it mirrored things that we valued but mm -hmm. maybe were not as good at valuing. And so it was like trying to help us help ourselves towards things that we want to have more of and know sure. better but are still so unbelievably prone mm -hmm. to bail on anyway, right? So maybe we could talk about that. Like you and I... Like, we know, we know, we know. Yeah. We teach this stuff. We teach this stuff to our college students. We teach yeah. this stuff, you know, we think about this stuff. As Christians, we we interact with a deep contemplative tradition of not just scripture reading or sermon hearing, but meditation on the word, prayer that is not um, hasty or just sort of consumer-driven. I need this, Lord, I need mm -hmm. that. Um, just trying to... Just trying to meet in any way the life that we actually want for ourselves. How hard is that? Yeah, it's the hardest thing ever. I mean, it's for obvious reasons uh, because it, it requires work. You don't just passively become a saint. Um, and so anything that is a passive diversion in your life, you know, is, I mean, if we just think about things just in terms of spiritual warfare, for instance, um, you know, the enemy wants nothing more than to keep you distracted all the time. And, and so, and even if he wasn't there, we'd do it to ourselves. But, um, you know, so much of what is the world and what is antithetical to Christ is um, designed to, to disrupt sustained attention. I think that that's one of the, you could probably carry that, you know, that, that kind of condensed idea out and, and look at almost any aspect of brokenness in the world mm -hmm. and, and, see, and see that there is a fragmentation, a disruption of narrative, a disruption of the ability to have a sustained focus on the good uh, in whatever area of life we're, we're looking at. We are going to put a bookmark in at that point in my conversation with Justin, and we will have part two of this conversation about Christianity and technology next week. So be looking for that. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives 
and your mother Lois to subscribe. And your sweet, sweet grandmother. Oh, grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed. <laughs>